This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. Well, the world is in turmoil. The bull in the china shop has turned bare. Greece is tittering economically, and at home we have enough commissions, royal and otherwise, to warm the hearts of many illegal firms CFO. And speaking of lawyers, Lex Judicata has walked into the studio this morning. Our very own head legal counsel will be chatting with us about attorneys. Now, when I think attorney, I think Petricelli, and I think Better Call Saul. But here in Oz, we've got them too. They're called powers of attorney. Why is he looking at me like that? And at some point, the Power of Attorney Act is going to affect you and me. Now, new POA, Power of Attorney Acts and Laws, are coming into effect in Victoria in September. And Lexi will be telling us just what they all mean. Won't you, Lexi? Do my best <laughs> with all these interruptions. <laughs> it's not, no, I'm not going to go down that track. Last month, Dr. Nick told us about antibiotic resistance. Now, he is an evidence-based general practitioner at the front lines. And no doubt this past freezing Melbourne week, he's been seeing loads of people coming through his doors with coughs and colds. So, of course, we're going to be asking him, did he prescribe antibiotics to any of those patients? But more importantly, Nick is going to be telling us about what we can do to treat coughs and colds ourselves. Hmm. Now, if you're a smoker, is it your right to light up on hospital grounds or in a prison cell. Um, at most government buildings, smoking is banned. Indeed, in some US cities, smoking is banned in entire towns. But how does the individual's right to light up stack up against non-smokers' clean air rights? Moreover, if a hospital doesn't ban smoking, is it giving the wrong message? It's an ethical Rubik's Cube. And who better than... Dr. Moto, our consultant psychiatrist, to take us through the twists and turns. Now, that's going to be a packed show. Uh, so why don't you stay with us for the next hour of radio therapy? Good morning, Lex. Well, it's great to be here. I'm, uh, it's great to be anyway. Do you want me to talk about catch-up, or do you want me just to no, waffle so you, on for the next 55 minutes? So, Lex, we've been doing the show now for like five years. Usually we go around and introduce each panel member, <laughs> and then we come back to you. It's not the Lex Judicata show. Okay. Yes. Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> yes. oh, I'll just go over the road and have a coffee, if that's all right. Yeah, please. Uh, sitting next to you is Dr. Nick. How are you, Nick? I'm very well, and I'm glad to see you multiplied front lines to the plural, because there seem to be a lot of them at the moment in your introduction. Front lines. There are mm. a lot of front, fronts, fronts of line. Now, sitting next to Dr. Moto, good morning, Dr. Moto. Good morning. Is Dr. Perry Partham, who is uh, somebody who I've been wanting to bring on the show for a long time. Good morning, Perry. Good morning, Mel. Nice to have your voice on the show. Now, Perry, you're coming in to talk with us about a really important topic. Why don't you tell us what's happening in the western suburbs? Okay. So just to put your listeners in the picture, um, I'm a psychiatrist. I worked up until the end of June, actually, in a mental health service that provided care to women who were having babies at Mm -hmm. a large outer metropolitan hospital Mm -hmm. in the western suburbs. And uh, our funding was actually withdrawn by the Commonwealth Government in line with quite a lot of other organisations that provided care to a similar group of people. Mm -hmm. So I suppose I wanted to talk about that primarily and um, how disappointing it is that that's happened. So what's actually happened? There there was a a service looking after mums or or mums-to-be 
in terms of psychological issues and that, f- that funding for that has disappeared or what's yeah, up with that? Yeah, that's what happened. So about five years ago, the National Perinatal Depression Initiative was funded by the Commonwealth Government, $55 million um, mm. to be rolled out over five years. And primarily the focus of that was to be... Um, to provide screening to women who were about to have babies and then to provide care and follow-up for those women after they had their children to reduce all of the negative impacts that are associated with depression and anxiety around the time of birth. And so lots and lots of um, initiatives were started up throughout Australia, and ours was one of them. Mm. Um, So in my own situation, I got the opportunity to work uh, with a really impressive group of people and to do some stuff that I thought was really, really useful and a lot of fun. It was actually probably the best job I've ever had and selfishly I'm particularly disappointed that it's come to an end. So what sort of stuff would you be doing with expectant mums? So we ran clinics in the antenatal service so we would primarily be working with referrals from midwives at the Mm -hmm. hospital and we mostly saw women who were suffering from depression and anxiety Uh, Some of them had more serious Mm -hmm. issues um, and were severely unwell with some less common problems like psychosis Mm -hmm. or bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of them uh, also had problems with drug and alcohol issues, Mm -hmm. so pretty vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. I had a couple of patients who were homeless and pregnant, which Mm -hmm. is not good. And uh, I suppose we were one amongst a few services providing care to these women and... And now we don't exist. So what happens now if, if uh, a mum-to-be is depressed or anxious or has a psychological issue, where does she go? Well, if she lives in the western suburbs of Melbourne and she can't afford private care, there's a very limited availability of mm-hmm. services. Not only... So we weren't the only people providing care in that space. Um, there were quite a lot of other services as well whose funding has been withdrawn in tandem, unfortunately. So there was Care, who provided mm-hmm. home visiting services to depressed mums and they've had their funding withdrawn as well. Uh, another hospital um, in the western suburbs provided sort of um, one-off assessments for pregnant women uh, and a, sort of a triage service mm-hmm. and that's also ceased as of the end of June. So really... There's kind of nothing. So does that mean there's nothing in in Victoria or Melbourne now in that space as a result of this removal of the Commonwealth funding? Uh, I think probably the western suburbs are particularly hard hit, um, but I do think there's a lot less available for women who can't afford private care. So I'm probably only able to speak about the area that I'm that I know about, which is in the western suburbs. And, and why can't the state pick up the gap? Why didn't the state fund it in the first place? This is also a good question. And, in fact, towards the end of our time, we knew that the funding was um, under review. And we were hoping against hope that, in fact, the state would pick up some of that slack. And particularly for some of my patients who were most unwell, I really didn't want to discharge them unless I really had to. So uh, we hoped against hope, but in the end, the state decided not to not to focus their funding in this area. In the interim, till till funding does become available and we really hope it does and talking about it on air now hopefully Mm. we can you know find some ways that people will recognize how important it is uh the local general practitioner services i mean that would be probably the first stop that you would hope yes provide some services yeah yeah that's right so gps can still refer to psychologists Mm -hmm. under the um various different schemes that the commonwealth government still does fund Mm -hmm. um a lot of the national perinatal depression initiative funding did go to providing additional services particularly for um women in the postpartum Mm -hmm. uh 
to fund psychology services from the general practitioner, and that's also been withdrawn. So it's not just us. Yeah. Sadly. Well, hopefully somebody in power who's listening or people who have influence of people in power mm. can write, can email, can say, hey, you know, what's happened? Mm. Thanks, Bree. Stick around because we'd love to have your comments for the rest of the show. From the start of life to the end of life. Well, Mel, that's right. There's a, a parliamentary inquiry uh, going on in Victoria uh, run at the, by the Upper House members. Uh, it's looking at end-of-life choices for Victorians and they're receiving submissions until the 29th of July. They've already received a lot of submissions, I understand, but it's really an opportunity for people in Victoria to express their view to lawmakers about what should happen about end-of-life uh, uh, matters affecting us uh, when, you know, when, we, when, we, when we die. And there are a number of issues already out there. Um, uh, we've already, we, I think we've talked on this program before about uh, advanced care directives and the mm-hmm. fact that um, there's at the moment no protection for health workers if they were to give effect to an advanced care directive in the face of an angry family who might inf- indeed threaten to sue the doctor or the nurse for carrying out the advanced care directive. Just let me underline that. So if I have an advanced care directive which basically says... I want X and Y done as I'm approaching my the end of my life, and you as a doctor follow what I have written, and my family's upset with that, they can take action against you. Uh, well, that's the worry for a lot of medical practitioners. In mm. my view, it would be hard to th- think that that would succeed, but a lot of them are very worried about oh, okay. it. Okay, so that's and a worry particularly worried when they don't do anything. For example, okay. someone's in a nursing home and... and there's only a nurse on duty at two in the morning, <clears> and and the old uh, and the patient has a deterioration. The advanced care director says, "Make me comfortable. I don't want to. I don't want any uh, serious interventions." The family arrive and say, "Call an ambulance. Get take this. Mm-hmm. Take our mum to the Royal mm-hmm. Melbourne." Mm-hmm. So they end up in the emergency department mm-hmm. of, a, of a tertiary hospital mm-hmm. where they proceed to pass away mm-hmm. with noise and mayhem going mm-hmm. on as happens on the early hours of the morning often in an emergency department uh, and and of course the problem for the the healthcare worker back at the nursing home is look i knew this person had, had left us with an advanced care directive that said don't do this and um and i really was under a legal threat that if i carried out her wishes i would be sued so how do we get protection for them is at the moment there is none there is if if you have a refusal of treatment certificate and uh, you don't act hang on hang, hang on lexi when i asked you, you you said that it is a worry that the health provider mm. could be acted on well they could be they could have a complaint made to apra they could have a complaint made to the regulator. But aren't, but aren't they protected by the Advanced Care Directive? Is no, this more a perception? they're not. There's no legal protection in Advanced Care Directive. There is no law in Victoria uh-huh. around so Advanced Care question. Directives. None. And that, that's why this is an opportunity. So, so in that situation where mum is taken to a hospital against her wishes, yep. uh, her Advanced Directive, mm. um, if, the health, if, if the nurse said, no, no, you're staying, she's staying here, and the family said, no, no, we want to take her, and... The, the mother passes away in the nursing home. The family could complain to APRA, to the medical board, basically, yep. have a legitimate complaint. Yep. They could take action, legal action, against the nurse. They might say she's breached her duty of care. But, you know, you've got an advanced care directive, so what? You've got a, also got a duty of care to my mother to get to keep her alive and to give her what's in her best interests. And now, of course, the argument there is, well, your mother left an advanced care directive saying, I don't want 
uh, heavy medical intervention if I have a deterioration. So there'd be an argument, you know, and a very angry family, often with professional children, like a lawyer's son Us. or yeah. even a doctor <laughs> yeah. daughter, uh, can take a very strong view and put pressure and, in fact, ruin the end of life for a lot of people by, by overre- uh, over, overreaching so what's in the advanced care directive. Isn't this more a matter of the family getting together before th- this situation happens and everybody being on the same page rather well, than trying it in some sort of... Often they don't even know that the person's made an advanced care directive uh, because it's something that they, the, the, yeah. they mightn't have told their family, which, yeah. of course, you, you shouldn't do, but that could happen. Yeah. As usual, Mal, finger right on the pulse um, because one of the things about advanced care directives is that they don't work very well if they're done solo. Mm. Um, so we know that if an elderly person sits in a room by themselves with a lawyer, perhaps fills in a piece of paper, doesn't talk to the family, that's when things go mm. wrong. So, well, with their GPs, often yeah. happens too. So yeah, it's a crucial true. process that the advanced care directive must be discussed with other family members. Maybe it should, it should be called a family advanced care directive. Well, yeah, that's true. But it, it's a personal thing. But even so, look, with, the, with refusal of treatment, you can refuse treatment in Victoria since 1988. And if you refuse it and the doctor does nothing, the doctor is immune from uh, suit by the family. They can't be sued. Yeah. Uh, the obvious ob- obvious opposite is if the doctor continues to treat, they can be charged with assault. Right. Yeah, yeah. The same really should happen with advanced care directives if we're serious about implementing and having advanced care directives. So tell Victoria. us what people can do to submit something. They can write to the Parliament of Victoria, to the uh, Parliamentary Social Issues Committee, um, uh, and send in a submission. You can find it on the Parliament of Victoria website under committees. Uh, you've got till the end of July to do it. And if you've had a bad experience or a, a, a good experience and you want to share those views about how the law perhaps could be changed in Victoria to improve things for uh, people at the end of their lives, this is a unique opportunity. The last time we had it was 1988. That led to the Medical Treatment Act. So this has tuckless, this has uh, power, this will Absolutely. change the law, well, potentially. This, no, this will mean um, these MPs will write a report for yeah. the government uh, and the government could accept or reject that report. Gotcha. It's less likely to reject a report from its own MPs than it would be, say, from the Law Reform Commission, for example. So it's a bit closer to the bone yeah. in terms of being done by MPs and <clears throat> there's a very good chance that it will be implemented as happened in 1988 when the Medical Treatment Act came in and we had the Refusal Treatment Certificate introduced. So something gotcha. big could come out of this. Thank you so much, Lexi. It's a heavy show, as you can hear on Radiotherapy. We are going to be talking with Dr Moto about lighting up just after this message. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Hey, Moto, you know, about 20 years ago, Dr. Shivago and I were travelling through uh, Southern California? No, well, California. And we rocked up to this town called San Luis Obispo. And in the entire town, you cannot light up a cigarette. I think there's maybe one park or one place. There's nowhere you can light up a cigarette in this entire town. And I thought, my goodness, this is just amazing. Um, I think at that stage, even in Australia, you could still smoke in restaurants. And now what we're seeing is a gradual change of not just policies, but culture and people's thinking about lighting up as, as a way of kind of introing your segment about smoking. 
Thanks for the intro, Mel. Um, this is a particularly timely discussion to have um, in light of what happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tuesday oh, yeah. the yep. 30th of June. As uh, we remember, um, there were the um, protests and the fire setting um, that took place at uh, the Melbourne Remand Centre, Port Phillip Prison and Ravenhall Prison um, because of um, legislation um, being brought in on July 1st, so the Wednesday after um, banning um, all smoking in custodial centres in really? Victoria. Is that unique, by the way? Uh, is that something that just happens in Victoria, or does it happen in other jurisdictions? Mm, so I, I looked into this, and um, interestingly, uh, New Zealand has um, banned... Uh, New Zealand, has, as we know, does a lot of things um, very progressively ahead of uh, its Tasman... Uh, Across Tasman neighbour, um, they've banned smoking in their prisons since 2011. Closer to home, um, the Northern Terry ban- uh, t- Northern Terry. Territory uh, <laughs> banned um, smoking in 2013, and yeah. Queensland banned smoking in their prisons last year. Huh. So, if anything, um, you know, if we take um, Australia and New Zealand together, yeah. uh, you know, Victoria will be number four. New and South Wales is following us, isn't it? That's right? correct. And, and New South Wales, Tasmania, SA, and um, Western Australia are looking at um, introducing the same um, degree of um, what was the reason? Restriction. What, what was the uh, I guess the precipitant for banning smoking in prisons was it a health concern? Was it a some other reason? It is primarily a health concern um, within the prison setting itself. Um, smoking and and um, tobacco and and cigarettes as a as a currency, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, can um, be positives and negatives depending on what the individual situation is. Um, for instance, for instance, um, one positive outcome could be that um, it uh, mitigates aggressive incidents, or it might even. Um, uh, placate um, mm-hmm. certain people and um, help people to settle into the custodial um, um, restrictive environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know the negative trade-off is obviously you know sometimes um, people um, can uh, get upset about um, not accessing tobacco. Um, they you know might even come to blows uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, disagreement between people about smoking and if it becomes a sort of a currency or bartering device, um, you know, debts are owed, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Isn't it often used in, like, I remember, where did I say this? Oh, probably on telly somewhere, that it, you can use cigarettes or cigarettes had been used by uh, officers or by um, even, you know, nurses to say, okay, look, if you're Settle down. Let's let's go outside. You can have a fag just to cool off. And it's a way of just sort of de-escalating a situation. I mean, is that is that not something that's taken into consideration when this legislation gets changed? Um, I think it has been taken into consideration. Um, and uh, interestingly, um, in preparing for um, the smoking ban, they also thought about um, alternative um, strategies or okay. um, sweeteners so, um, yeah. that they could use to. Um, uh, help the inmates settle into mm-hmm. this transition. So um, at uh, um, a couple of the prisons, mm-hmm. um, the week or so before July 1st, they were offering um, seafood meals on their menu. They were offering 200-gram steaks. Um, they were offering lollipops to, to help with... Cigarettes. That's correct, instead of cigarettes. Do you mean lollipops um, are cut out when you go to prison? Oh, that's put me off crime, I can no, tell you. No, tapa chaps for you. I'm just turning over. I'm going to pay my tax on time, do everything right from now on. I'm not sure what the evidence base is for lollipops for nicotine cessation, but, um, but an important point is that the adult smoking rates in the general population only down now to around about 15% or so. But if I'm right, the smoking rates in the prison population is up near 80%. 
Um, so it's a, it's a huge difference, isn't it? This isn't a, a minority who smoke. It's the overwhelming majority. Yes, I mean, the, the figures that I came across are very similar. Um, it, it shows that uh, the about 20, 15 to 20% of the Australian population, adult population smoke tobacco, um, but in the... Um, um, forensic custodial system, um, as much as 85% um, percent mm. of um, people smoke. And does the argument come up also that um, secondary inhalation by workers in prisons is a factor just as it was in restaurants and pubs? Therefore, That is a major concern, yes. Right. yes. As, ver- as well as um, for the inmates' health, it's also for the staff's health. So tell us about hospitals and what's happened there over the last couple of years in terms of uh, smoking policy. Well, this is not actually a a new debate. um, Victoria has been introducing um, smoke-free hospitals for, as far as I can remember, for about seven or eight years Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Um, But probably uh, little known is the fact that it was actually on April 13 this year that it became um, Victorian legislation, that um, all uh, healthcare uh, centres, um, childcare centres, including kindergartens, schools, um, and, and healthcare um, uh, facilities, therefore also includes um, public hospitals, community health centres, and um, the majority of government buildings are completely smoke-free zones. And this came effect in April. So what does that mean? You can't, sm- you can't smoke in them, but can you smoke around them? Like, is there a 10-metre perimeter where you're not allowed to smoke? It's a four-metre rule from any entrance. And anywhere inside the building, obviously, um, including um, toilets, courtyards, cafeterias, really? um, you know, um, hallways, balconies, that's all considered an integral part of the building. And outside of the building, you have to be at least four metres away from any entrance. But uh, there's no reason why in hospital, if you're in for a broken arm overnight, you can't walk out of the hospital, go across the road and have a smoke. Whereas if you're an involuntary psychiatric patient, that option's not open to you. So is this sort of discriminating against uh, uh, involuntary patients by refu- not allowing them to smoke, whereas an ambulatory voluntary patient has that other option? That's a really good question, and I, I feel there are two folds to that comment. One is that um, um, the, the, the scenario of um, ambulatory uh, patients um, and family members um, going off-site to smoke is something that we're seeing more and more of. Um, and most uh, healthcare institutions or hospitals that we you know, see, uh, you know, they're Outside, there'll be the name of the hospital and a big sign, <laughs> non-smoking, we're pleased to support a non-smoking environment, and then there'll be 20 people out there with IV drips and poles and wheelchairs, etc. I'm waiting for um, the first bushfire in Faulkner Park. I reckon this summer we'll get one. That's 4. right. 4.1 metres away from the hospital. <laughs> Researchers reported diminished possum population in Faulkner <laughs> Park because of um, second-hand tobacco smoke. Um, I-, I worked in a, a regional hospital um, where um, just behind the hospital was a railway track and um, this is where um, people tended to conglomerate to smoke on the railway track I mean that obviously then um, poses um, That's transport why smoking's accident bad for your health, risk. isn't it? You get run over by a train. That's it's correct. Too much smoking. That's correct. Mm. And, and I suppose the second part to that statement Lex is um, whether it's discriminatory um, mm. and whether um, people who are confined to stay in hospital are um, limited um, 
in terms of accessing their tobacco. And I certainly understand that um, there have been many um, consumers of mental health services and carers of mental health um, clients um, who are strong, strong advocates um, for smoking in um, mental health facilities as a bit of a caveat or an exemption. And just one quick thing that I will raise, I think this really sort of came to a head back in 2013 when um, a uh, involuntary patient who uh, was at Liverpool Hospital in, in Sydney who um, uh, was um, given short trials of leave off the ward as he was getting better and um, who unfortunately successfully um, suicided um, during leave. Um, so Unescorted leave. On unescorted leave. So then the argument turned around and suggested, well, if there was smoking on site, he wouldn't have needed to go off hospital grounds um, to, to have a cigarette, um, and therefore he would have been in a more monitored um, uh, situ- uh, environment, and maybe this would have been preventable. Well, what about nicotine replacement therapy? I mean, isn't there a third aspect of this about whether this is actually good health care? Because while we know that smoking is not a great mm-hmm. idea, uh, when you're talking about people who are acutely psychologically, psychiatrically disturbed, and we know what a huge impact removing cigarettes from that group uh, can cause, uh, isn't this potentially a very adverse psychological effect on them, making their treatment much, much harder? Absolutely. Absolutely, and um, this is where you know I tend to um, take sides with um, people who are um, deprived of um, nicotine. It's, um, yes, I understand it's you know um, not good to smoke, and I understand that uh, when people um, use leave um, and they go out to have a cigarette and then they come back and you know they go out again and then come back, um, you know it's effectively sort of um, putting themselves to a lot of um, nicotine. Um, Influx and then withdrawal, influx, withdrawal, and it's actually quite disturbing. And the only non-doctor on the panel, Lex, brought up the idea of nicotine replacement therapy. How does that factor into this debate? And why isn't that part of your duty of care? Well, it is, actually. So, um, if anything, nicotine replacement therapy is... uh, So, we're talking about um, nicotine um, patches um, and all sorts of um, delivery mechanisms such as... um, that that are more instantaneous, such as um, sprays, lozenges, um, inhalers, gums. And symptom control? What about symptom control? You know, stopping the feelings, not just getting away from the nicotine, but... I don't know what you know. I don't know what the symptoms are, but you might be able to intervene there too, pharmaceutically. Yes, yes. So there's some you know pharmaceutical pharmaceutical aids that can help. So uh, medications that help with the general feelings of um, unrest and anxiety, they can help. Nicotine replacement can help um, significantly, and uh, these are um, measures that are being um, heavily introduced and and. Um, uh, pushed out um, through um, health services, mental health services, as well as custodial services. Do you know what's interesting? When I first think about, you know, should smoking um, be banned in hospitals, uh, you know, it quickly, just my answer comes up, of course it should be. It's, you know, it's a health thing. But then when you get down to the nitty-gritty about what happens with patients that are there involuntarily and the, the kind of the more practical issues of patients going off-site and risking themselves getting hurt because they are addicted to, to nicotine, it becomes a much more complex issue, you know. And I mm. guess it, this is kind of the things that you, Dr. Moto, have to deal with as a psychiatrist in a large hospital. How do you balance all these ethical issues? I mean, what goes through your head? It is a very, very, very complex 
issue yeah. you know um on the individualistic level yeah. um on the individual level then the, the permutations are endless but even at a populational or organizational level it still remains very complex um my my sort of personal view or the sense that i get is that um um people smokers um do want to be able to stop smoking yeah. you know they want to get to the stage where um and, I, and i'm mindful i'm generalizing here yeah, not but all smokers but a, a lot of people yeah. a lot of people they they want to get to the stage where they have control, control. Yeah. of the product rather than the product having control of them yeah but the sense i get is um people are upset about having this right or this freedom or this autonomy taken away from mm. them. So um, in, in a sort of a, in, in my interpretation, uh, sort of banning um, smoking in hospitals and in custodial services, um, it's more, um, I, th- I think um, the frustration is more related to the deprivation of this liberty than the actual product uh-huh. itself. Yeah. Why, why don't we take away, why do we take away their alcohol too? I mean, why shouldn't they be given alcohol? I mean, that's legal. Who? Patients. Why, right. w- yeah, they come in with a bottle of whiskey. Yeah. Why shouldn't they be allowed to drink whiskey on the ward if they're allowed to go out and have a smoke? I mean, what's the difference? It's a, they're both legal drugs, alcohol and nicotine. Mm-hmm. Why not let them drink on the wards? Now, you wouldn't agree to that. You would say they shouldn't be given alcohol, allowed to have alcohol, even though it's legal. So isn't it the same that they shouldn't also be allowed to smoke because both damage their health and both interfere with treatment? But I suppose the smoke does have a secondary effect on other people. On the staff, yeah. And, and I guess one of the huge arguments always about smoking is for the staff members who are affected by it. And, and that, that argument, I think, is a very strong one. But you can, you can put people into those um, airports where they have that smoking yeah, room, yeah, yeah. where they cage off these poor smokers. They look as though they're in some secure wing of a psych ward already. <laughs> and there's this fug of smoke as 20 people cram in there for a gasp and a puff. Um, I mean, my, my view is when, when I'm dealing with people who have substance issues or psychological issues, uh, smoking is a critically important health issue, but it's not our primary concern when we're dealing with those things. And if someone's addicted to heroin and they smoke and they drink, the smoking is the last thing that we try and deal with. We've got to deal with the stuff that really it's matters first. It's harm minimisation exactly in each patient. That. Yeah. But, yeah. but cigarettes cause harm. Yeah, yeah, but you, but what uh, Nick's saying is there's, there's a, a hierarchy. hierarchy of harm. If I have someone who is suicidally depressed or psychotic, yeah, got to deal with that. Their smoking issue today is yeah. not the primary concern. No, but you deal with it along as the way you deal with some other addiction they might have too. And Lex, there are very few people that come to hospital carrying a bottle of port. You know. They're well, you'd have alcoholics, though. You'd have people addicted to alcohol. You do have people who are addicted to alcohol. wards, and, and you don't let them continue their addiction, do you? Or do you? No, no, no. Tell us all. (laughs) You you tend not to. No. (laughs) So what's the difference? I think Lex raises a very interesting point. It's and it's a sort of a more hard-lined approach, I suppose, to um, substance control on the um, in in the hospital environment. Um, Yes, both. Um, substances are legal, um, so you know if you strongly disallow the other, um, why don't you strongly disallow? Well, you not know. just disallow them. I think though, I think that the nicotine replacement therapy is a key issue. If you can say to a patient, uh, "Okay, you can't smoke it here, but we're going to give you we're going to give you treatment that will help you maybe kick the habit," mm-hmm. we're not just going to say go go cold turkey 
and sit in that room and you're not having a cigarette, but we'll actually actively try to get you off the addiction. And I think that's a reasonable prospect for a patient, a deal for a patient, a, something you can, an that, agreement you can come that, to. And, Lex, that happens to people who have an addiction or a dependence on alcohol as well. There's mm. a whole management sort of structure that comes uh, or, or around the patient. Yeah, well, there's a structure that comes around that particular patient to help them kick that habit as mm. well. We, Moto. Well, maybe just to finish up on the um, debate, and I mean, you know, from I, I know that um, from an ethical standpoint, things are very, very um, complex, and there are pros and cons to um, either case. But you know, now that um, I suppose as a clinician and as, as a hospital worker, um, now that the legislation has been introduced and we've sort of got our hands tied mm-hmm. um, in its implementation, I th- I th- in my view, I think the um, probably how we have to. Um, make this work is to really try to have a really comprehensive um, policy in that, you know, everything is rolled out and there's no discrepancy about... How, how do you yeah. mean? What do so, you mean? So, so... Um, it's got to be consistent. It, so it has every to be consistent and it has or? to be comprehensive. So um, if... Um, people are smoking and it, it is considered breaking the law. I think we need to be consistent about how we manage it. Are there going to be um, legal ramifications as well? Again, this is probably a sort of a hardline approach to taking this. Um, but I think what we also need to be aware of is that um, if healthcare staff are expected to sort of reprimand people for smoking, it significantly changes the milieu of what That's we do. That's a very good point, isn't it? Do we become the police of the hospital? Lex, just to finish up on that, Let's just say you're smoking at 3.5 metres outside a government institute. Um, do you get a ticket? What happens? Well, um, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get a ticket from the institution. You, I, no, I, police pull you up and say something? Uh, but most unlikely. And most <laughs> so unlikely would, a magistrate would even consider it being an issue because evidentiary, you know, it'd be too hard to prove the, on evidence. But, you know, I, I think that... Um, there's no doubt, though, there has to be some ultimate penalty. If someone's flagrantly yeah. smoking in the foyer of a public hospital yeah. and refuses to stop, then you would indeed uh, look at some sort of penalty infringement notice or something similar. But I think it's more about trying to preserve, as Moto says, the therapeutic relationship between the clinical staff and the patient. Absolutely. And that's why offering a clinical solution to smoking is better than simply playing a policeman and saying you can't do it. Absolutely. And on that note, Lex, because I don't want to eat into your time, we're going to finish up. Thank you so much, Moto. Very interesting uh, approach to a complex... Oh, I think a Rubik's Cube is the way I like to think of it. There's so many factors that each affect each other. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Dr Nick... Um, you being the GP for my family will know that one of my members gets lots of coughs and colds and we're forever trying different things and you know me as a doctor you'd think that I'd know the evidence base for this or that and I really don't um, so tell me what I should know well you've probably seen some of the TV adverts from the National Prescribing Service it's our annual coughs and colds and flu campaign going on about why you don't need antibiotics for most of these infections no I haven't yeah, well you obviously don't watch, watch enough, enough commercial TV. television uh, I know clearly I have to watch more <laughs> Um, but one of the things that's always interested me as someone who's been part of these campaigns is we spend a lot of time saying what you don't need. Um, ah. But then, of course, people want to know, well, what can I do? Um, yeah. And this 
is a very vexed area um, because I'm sure the listeners are well aware because they've heard these messages. But just yeah. to remind people, the ordinary old coughs, colds and flus are all viral infections and our capacity to usefully treat viral infection is very limited. Uh, antibiotics have no role in virus infections. They only treat bacterial infections. Oh, okay. So your ordinary old virus infection with the sniffles, the coughs and so on, very hard for us to know what to do. And there was a lot of interest um, back in the 60s and 70s uh, generated by a guy called Linus Pauling. Oh, yeah. A name you might remember. One of, the, one of only two, I think it is, dual Nobel Prize winners to win Nobel Prize for two different things. He got one for chemistry mm. about 1954 and then got the Nobel Peace Prize um, in try, the 60s. He's a try-hard, yeah. clearly. Um, and uh, Linus, he was an interesting character. Because he was a chemist, but he also suffered from a thing called Bright's disease, a kind of kidney disease. Uh, And he was treated early on in his life with sort of vitamin therapy uh, and thought this was terribly successful. Um, So he was very influenced by the role of sort of natural treatments and got very engaged with what he called orthomolecular medicine. He was the... He, he coined that term. What does that mean? And it's the term that's used around using natural products, things like vitamins and supplements, uh, in the treatment of illness and disease of various kinds. Okay. And, and to orange juice and a hot lemon drink. Yeah, I, I, th- I think they like to make it slightly more complex and they're very hard to make a living out of saying just go to bed and take a hot lemon drink. Um, so he started the whole uh, interest in vitamin C as a treatment, uh, as both a preventative and treatment of virus infection, published lots of studies and so on. Uh, and uh, I mean, I remember this well because my father, as a psychiatrist back in the 70s in the UK, was taking vitamin C every day to prevent oh. his coughs and colds. Um, sadly, all Linus Pauling's research has largely been debunked. Um, and people went well away from the whole vitamin C concept. What, uh, debunked as in? It, w- it turned out to be not very good research, okay. and all the decent studies that came afterwards didn't seem to support his thesis that vitamin C was a good treatment. So the wheel of vitamin C's fortune has turned at least one circle, hmm. uh, but it's turned about another half circle in my view, hmm. because there's some interesting more recent studies uh, around natural treatments for coughs and colds. So there are three Three products I focus on. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of one straight away. Yeah. Um, so echinacea uh, is a sort of herbal immune boosting kind of product that's been wildly, wide, wildly perhaps, mm-hmm. and widely mm-hmm. uh, used in the treatment of virus infections. Sadly, the most recent really good study on that failed to show any benefit at all. Okay. So I'm going to put echinacea aside. I okay. mean, lots of people believe in it, um, and it's pretty safe. It is a herbal product. Mm-hmm. You can be allergic to echinacea, so it's not mm-hmm. zero risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't believe the evidence supports its use. Mm-hmm. However, um, there have been some recent studies on vitamin C, uh, and while some of the older studies suggested it wasn't very effective at the prevention of viral infection, um, a new study, well, a meta-analysis of a whole range of new studies mm-hmm. suggested that while in kids and adults the effect of preventing infection was modest, it did improve the recovery time, so people mm-hmm. got better more quickly if they'd been taking preventative doses. But then five studies on elite athletes, and I'm looking around this studio and I'm seeing finely honed bodies and elite athleticism. Oh, I just looked at Lex. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you broke an ankle. <laughs> uh, but in the studies of elite athletes, very interestingly, uh, vitamin C regularly every day reduced by 50% their rate of coughs and colds. 
Sorry, is this prevention? or Prevention, this? yeah. This was just oh. taking a small dose every day as prevention. Really unexpected finding, but that was five studies. Our oh. listeners in Mildura, the orange groves, just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gone ballistic. I thought you just said that the, the vitamin C um, theory was made debunked. You missed my Shakespearean metaphor that the turned. circle had turned another 180 degrees. Turned. So, the yeah. wheel has turned. So, so this, is, this is the nature of evidence. Isn't a new it? research. What, what new was, research. Yes, what was right last week is not this week. And so, so vitamin C, I think on its own, now we're talking prevention at the moment. Prevention. Then, then we have treatment studies where people take large doses at the start of an infection to try and ward off the uh, symptoms more quickly. In vitamin C, unless you take huge doses, we're talking about 8 to 10 grams a day or more. What? But yes, big, big doses. That's uh, really that's dangerous, isn't it? It's not dangerous. The side effect, if you take very large doses, is diarrhea. Diarrhea, yeah. So it's not dangerous. It doesn't poison you. It just comes out the other end rather more rapidly than you would like. <laughs> okay. Um, but there is some evidence that high dose at the start of infection can be effective, but only at really at very high dose. Right. Perhaps more interestingly is the role of zinc. Okay. So zinc is another supplement. It's an element that's in our diet, and it's been also researched for both these two areas, prevention and treatment. Mm -hmm. The evidence for zinc as an effective preventative of viral infection is a bit stronger, particularly in kids. Um, So it was quite good at helping kids have fewer infections, and high dose at the start of infection also has better evidence for benefit. So where do we find zinc? Do we send them up on the roof to suck on the corrugated iron? or What what do we do to get Uh, zinc? So the the best way to get zinc in in the doses we need here is to go and buy a supplement, because we're talking quite high doses for him. So the other thing about zinc, again, it's safe. So you could, the worst side effect of high dose of zinc is a nasty metallic taste in the mouth. Mm-hmm. So my recommendation to people, very mm-hmm. simply, is let's combine. Nobody's done a trial with zinc and vitamin C, but there's no reason why you can't combine the two together. And there are plenty of products you can buy at your local pharmacy um, which combine zinc and vitamin C. Um, and either to consider taking the preventative dose if you're really worried about trying to stop yourself get a cold or take high doses at the start of an infection to try and ward off the symptom. Have you come across any more updates about thymoid garlic? Which garlic? <laughs> Throwing in a curly question there. Garlic. garlic. Chewing garlic. garlic. Just garlic. garlic. Just ordinary old garlic. And there, there are studies on just about every su- supplement you can think of, ginkgo biloba and garlic and so on. There are no convincing studies that I have seen on any other natural substance. I say echinacea was the one that was widely touted but has failed the evidence test in my view. Uh, garlic hasn't been shown to be effective in the viral infection. When I, when I think evidence, I think Cochrane, which is kind of like the how shall I say it? Non-partisan, totally objective, impartial, gold standard, gold standard yep. publicly available database of evidence. Now, what does that say about vitamin C or zinc and coughs and colds? So this is where I, uh, I'm quoting my data from. Oh, so from Cochrane. Yeah, yeah, okay. This comes straight from Cochrane. And Cochrane essentially say, look, we've got no proof that this stuff is really good. There is a little bit of evidence it might be some good. My point is it's cheap and it's safe and we've got actually nothing else. Right. <laughs> so, uh, why wouldn't we try it? And, for instance, just as a, a tip, uh, my year 12 daughter, um, I had her taking a vitamin C and zinc supplement just one a day all through the winter time of year 12. It wasn't going to do her any harm at all and maybe it helped her not get those sorts of infections that really matter at a time of high stress and, and exams. Did it work? 
because she was virus free for there the entire winter. And, 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 and rust free too. <laughs> 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 the, Nick, the doctor next study, one hundred percent successful. So what else can we do? We got vitamin C, we got zinc, preventative. What else can we do when, say, I get a cold today? What am I going to do? Uh, one of the things, one of the things you might have come across. <clears throat> over and over again is drink plenty of fluids, yes. drink plenty of water. Um, I actually managed to get that removed from the national advertising campaign because there is zero evidence that we should drink more fluid. Really? Mm. Uh, this goes completely, it seems counterintuitive because we've been told it for so long. But actually, if you look at the data, there have been deaths from people drinking too much fluid. Mm. So there is a harm, and there is no no proof of any harm coming from right, people If you take all these supplements, you're going to be drinking a lot of fluid. <laughs> no, no, these are, these are lozenges. They're, ah, right. Oh, so chew them and yeah, suck them. Yes, I, I forgot to mention that. The ideal way to do it, because there is evidence that it's the flow of this zinc and oh. vitamin C over the respiratory tissues at the back of the throat. That, ah. uh, so it's like uh, a like a, like a cough lolly. Yeah, exactly that. Okay, mm. so don't drink too much. Forget about the fluid side thing. Just drink what you need. What about rest? Should I be resting or should I go to work and trudge on and infect my co-workers? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. We've come back to evidence again. I mean, there's there's no trial evidence around rest and viral infection. And I think the the answer is we really don't want you hacking and sniffing all over your patients and your co-workers. What bugs me about this, no pun intended, is that um, I was overseas in... August and developed uh, in um, May and developed a cough. I think I got it from economy class. You know <laughs> why, why the firm wouldn't pay for the front end of the plant? I don't know, but I ended up in a cattle class, and four people on every flight get infected on um, May uh, these big aeroplanes. So I picked it up right, and I had this cough, and I thought, oh, it's viral. I googled it, fluids. Obviously not correct. Uh, rest and don't bother going to a doctor. Well, in the US, you don't even think about going to a doctor, and you know, unless you're at death's door. So I thought that's fine. Four weeks it went on and it got progressively worse. Oh, oh, these viruses, they really hang around. I go get home, go to my GP, says, oh, it's a bacterial infection. You've mm. clearly got a bacterial infection. Two weeks after antibiotics, it was gone. Now, how do you know, how does the average punter know that it's a virus Good question. as opposed to a bacterial infection? I mean, obviously, you can go to your doctor, but, you know, we hold off, hold off, and in the end, we put up with these viruses longer than we should because they're not really viruses. And your story is interesting because today, two weeks after the antibiotic, you were better, and it's quite possible you were better despite the antibiotic rather than because of... Um, because many of these infections do run on for four to six weeks and it may have just been at the tail end and the antibiotics did nothing. The general rule, if we want to say, when is it bacterial... These are the sick people. It tends to be measurable fever. It tends to be the more extreme end. So it's not just a cough, but people who are really unwell with pain when they cough, coughing up lots of disgusting stuff, and with measurable temperature. Mm. So it's a fever. Fever uh, in adults give you a fever. Viruses can give you fever, but in adults, persistent fever with your infection is a. It's not a definite, but it's a significant pointer towards possible bacterial infection. Now, Lex, if you were flying overseas for company business and you got a cold, you got a, you got a, an infection. Compensation? Do you get compensation? Down? Yeah, yeah. Do you know a good lawyer? I could get some <laughs> advice on that. <laughs> you were doing it on my, on like you know the the company's dime. They should pay. I was on leave. Yeah. I'll confess. Ah, I'll confess. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Nick. I feel reassured by sensible advice. Reassured? He's just told us, don't drink fluids, ignore all that. <laughs> take vitamin C. Don't take the antibiotics. Forget about the, well, forget about the orange juice, but now, no, we're back on with the orange juice. No, see, Life's just a whole series of uncertainties. Welcome to the world, my friend. Welcome to the world. Now, you're heading into your own time again, Lexi. We're going to come back at you with Powers, Powers of Attorney with Lex Judicata. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, I thought in the smidgen of time that's left to me as usual on this show... <laughs> well, if you wouldn't interrupt I, so much, you'd have more yeah, time, would Yeah, yeah. I think we should have time on. We should go till about 10 past 11. <laughs> Let's but, speak um, to the scientists about that. Yeah. Uh, on the 1st of September, a new yeah. Powers of Attorney Act comes into Victoria. Uh, it comes into force in Victoria. And a power of attorney is where you give someone authority to act on your behalf. And you usually do it in writing, or you have to do it in writing, but sometimes VCAT can appoint somebody to act on your behalf if you haven't put it in writing. And there are four different powers of attorney in Victoria, and one of them is medical, where you give someone the right to make medical decisions on your behalf when you lose capacity. That is not changing. So if you have a medical power of attorney, you don't have to worry. Do you have to lose capacity for somebody to take power of attorney? You do with medical and you do with guardianship, but not, but with, not with financial. financial. You can determine yourself when you want the financial one to start when you make it. So <clears throat> there was a review done of these by the um, Attorney General, uh, and that's why medical hasn't changed, because the medical power of attorney is governed by the health minister. So it's interesting how politics <laughs> intervenes in all these things. <laughs> and so the decision's been made that from the 1st of September... The enduring financial and the enduring guardianship powers of attorney will be amalgamated into a new single power of attorney. So you can appoint somebody to act for you on on lifestyle issues, personal issues that is, and financial issues in the one in, in the one document. Or you could appoint a different person to act on financial from the person acting on personal. So you can, or you can have three or four people doing it. You can divide it between three or four people. So that's, but it's all under one instrument, one document called an enduring power of attorney. Now, if you have one that you've already made um, that's operable now, that won't be affected. So existing powers of attorney don't have to be remade, which okay. is a great problem for the legal profession because just think how much work that would have generated for it's us. Gold mine. Yeah, gold mine, like Royal Commissions. But it, it's uh, not changed. Good. So That's don't worry about your power of attorney if it's in place. Leave it in place if you're happy with it. Good. So what else has happened? Well, the, the important one of the important developments has happened is um, that, like the new Mental Health Act, the New Powers of Attorney Act states that a person is presumed to have capacity when they make a power of attorney. Uh-huh. So the Mental Health Act, as you know, also has that in it, that a mental health patient is presumed to have capacity. So what does that mean, that you as my lawyer, when I sign away my power of attorney to Point Dr Moto, hmm. you have to be satisfied that I'm competent at the time? I, I have to assume you've got capacity unless there's evidence there to the contrary. So just listening to you talking, I could, I, I, I'm assuming you're I'm not Project. saying, oh, he's got funny clothes on yeah. and he's leaving it all to who? Right. Uh, well, that's not an issue for capacity. Okay. Capacities, uh, and that's what the Act also says. The fact that someone makes bad decisions, unwise decisions, not a signi- not an indicator of lack of capacity, just like the Mental Health Act. Right. The fact they have weird dress uh, or they, they might um, look, look uh, you know, dishevelled, that's not a, 
a symptom of lack of capacity okay. either. So okay. you just take it as you... Okay, as given. So, yeah. so that's the first point. So that's very interesting, and it has a very good definition of capacity copied, lifted straight from the Mental Health Act. So that's a good thing. Secondly, um, more importantly, really, I think, it introduces the concept of a supportive attorney. So if you have capacity and let's say you're bedridden but you've you're quite you've got capacity but you really can't run around and sort out your financial mm-hmm. affairs and mm-hmm. talk to your financial advisor or whatever else you can appoint with a document a person called a supportive attorney and the supportive attorney helps you make your decisions so the supportive attorney will have access to your advisors to your bank to your doctor uh, for for lifestyle issues for you know should I go to a nursing home for example yeah. um and the doctor or the bank have to give that information to the supportive attorney. So the supportive attorney helps you make a decision but won't make the decision. Correct. Right. And the minute you lose capacity, the supportive attorney's role ceases. So they're only there while you have capacity. So that's the first in time in Australia that's been done. There's never been a supportive attorney appointed. It does mirror the Mental Health Act because yeah. people have advocates now in mental health, as you know. Yeah. Um, so, But it does mean that more people who have capacity but lack the means to really understand the decision they're making can have people help them make that decision. And, so, and if, and if I'm it. hearing it correctly, the difference between a supportive attorney and just a mate is that they are legally required to be given the information by banks or hospitals. And they have duties. So once you appoint someone, as a, and I should say also uh, as an attorney now, there are duties imposed on them under the law. So if they misbehave, a supportive attorney can be held accountable, can be liable to pay compensation to the uh, to the uh, uh, principal, yeah. just like an ordinary attorney now yeah. under this legislation can be held accountable if they um, if they invest you know, or give um, do, do things that really diminish the estate of the person or their assets intentionally or negligently or recklessly. recklessly. If they're actually criminal, there are now criminal penalties. It's five years in jail now if you are an attorney and you steal the money. Previously, there's really been only a common law. Uh, right yeah. to take them on. Now VCAT or the Supreme Court can uh, charge someone with wow. offences of dishonesty wow. for operating dishonestly as an attorney. Good thing. Good thing for the people yeah. who give them. Gives you more confidence. But remember, this only does not apply to the medical um, medical powers of attorney, which will continue where a person can consent to medical treatment on your behalf or refuse medical treatment. So, Alex, how does the average person go about... Um, the practicalities of appointing powers of attorney. I mean, it, like, like just say you don't have a solicitor, what do you do? Well, I just hope no one from my profession is listening to this, but you don't really <laughs> need a solicitor to do this. You can really? go to the um, public advocate website. The Office of the Public Advocate has for all the forms on, on its website. It doesn't have the new forms yet. They've got until 1 September to do it. Right. Uh, it will be up by, I'm confident the Public Advocate will have it already by the 1st of September, uh, where you can download the forms and complete them. Now, you might need a lawyer to help you complete the form if you're not sure, but you really don't need anyone to draft the form for you because it's right. all there on the web. So it's like boxes and yep. tick this, tick yep. that. Yeah, you can right print on. it out, fill in the spaces. And that's the same with medical power of attorney. It also has a form for when you want to uh, revoke a power of attorney. Right. So you might wish to uh, cancel that person as a, your attorney. The form's there to do the revocation as well. We have the best public advocate in the country, if not one of the best in the world. 
in terms of the resources it offers uh, Victorians, uh, it's really something exceptional, this OPA office. And listeners who know you well will know that you're, you, you, you're um, not the most over-generous person in handing out compliments to government <laughs> institutions. Oh, well, the public, public government's one-off. You know, you, um, just go to the website. If you have never been to the OPA website, just, w, just Google um, public advocate and you'll get it. Where's the safe safeguard in checking that one is actually capacitated and competent when they fill out their own power of attorney? Well, that's a good point, because the witnesses have to certify that the person has capacity when they witness. And indeed, uh, one of the witnesses has to be uh, someone authorised to witness affidavits. Now, that's a uh, higher standard than it used to be. It used to just be for powers of it, um, for uh, stat decks. Uh, now it's... Uh, so it's got to be a doctor or a lawyer or a pharmacist or a police officer, and they have to certify that, in their view, the person had capacity. Now, that's pretty hard for a I'm copper or a chemist or a lawyer. To, yeah, for they've just got to use their own personal view, talking to the person, listening to them. It's very hard for a doctor. And on that note, on how it's very hard for a doctor to do lots of things, I guess we're going to wind up. Thank you so much. You're going to be presenting this to uh, a very large uh, hospital. Oh, I've got to keep them awake. That's the problem. Thank you so much, Lex, for telling us about the powers of attorney. Thank you also to Dr Nick telling us about coughs and colds. Good time to be telling us about that. Thank you to Dr Perry Parton for coming in and telling us about... Well, I guess the sad side of affairs that's uh, been happening in your part of the world. Thank you also to Dr Moto for telling us about Lighten Up and the policies around that. We are going to leave you with those scientists from Einstein and Gogo. Look at them over there. They are raring to go. Coming up in about 10 seconds. We'll be speaking with you next Sunday morning at 10 for some more radiotherapy. We will speak to you then. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.